Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. With me today is James Lockery, who founded Wave, which raised over $70 million and was acquired by H&R Block for over $500 million. But these are just the headlines. Let's get the real story on Founders Uncut. At one point in the Wave journey, they launched a freemium model and it took almost two years to get revenue from that model, which created a lot of stress for James and the team and a lot of doubt from their earliest stakeholders. So let's hear more about that from him now. I think it was a a really strategic decision that we made inside of the company from the very early stages of the business model to have a freemium model. Yeah, it was about two years of struggle to get to plan with revenue off of our freemium model. And there was a lot of uncertainty and it created a bunch of doubt in our investors, our board members, which was something we had faced in the company. We had been flying high from the very beginning. And that loss of faith of our leadership at that time was something that was really hard to overcome. But we fixed it by fixing the revenue problem. Managing your investors, your directors, your supporters, your staff, your other leaders through that downtime was probably one of the biggest challenges of of the company. I mean, we drove it right up to the edge financially, but also I think we drove it right up to the edge as far as our capabilities as well. And having to manage those relationships with our investors, repair them, regain that faith, that was a hard process, and uh, it really, the catalyst in making the company started winning again, but also just being really transparent, being honest, uh, telling them what's working, what's not, and that collaborative through failure is not something that's natural to people, especially to me, because we don't fail very often. We don't really plan on failure either, so that level of adjustment, it was really a humbling experience to be in that depth of need, you know, for support and help and it not being there uh, when you most need it and being able to uh, fix the problem, repair the relationships and build the company again. I think that was the biggest challenge that we faced. Yeah. And before you get to that point, before you get to the wins, how do you know that you're going to win or how do you believe in yourself if the people around you are starting to doubt you and starting to doubt your team? Like, how was your mental process in that moment? I, I lied to myself constantly, <laughs> like just <laughs> constantly lied to myself. Everything's fine. Everything's going to be okay. You know, and I think that's, um, I have this baseline of optimism that I kind of run off of, which I think is very helpful in entrepreneurship. But despite facing a really, really deep uphill battle and uh, just still just blatantly lying to yourself. Those issues are not going to affect us. We are going to be successful and just keeping focused on that. I think that was the key. And I think that's one of the big keys for uh, entrepreneurs to be successful is having that optimism and that belief in the outcome, despite all the evidence saying it's not going to happen. And do you feel like that you said it's helpful to be a founder to think about those things, but do you think it's helpful or do you think it's absolutely necessary? It's probably necessary. Yeah. I think there's just so many downturns in a startup and going through the the product development, go to market, the scaling, the team, investors, there's just so many downturns that you that you have to have that resiliency and that resiliency has to be built off of something. So for me it's optimism. For other people, maybe whatever mental tools that they have to get through it. But for me it's optimism. And uh I think what's necessary is the resiliency. 
how you get that resiliency is maybe different for different people. Sometimes it comes in a bottle of wine, right? <laughs> I'll take a good bottle of wine, especially with a newborn. Um, <laughs> I think communicating not only to yourself, but also to the investors, I'm sure that was a, the hard thing to do. And do you think if you wouldn't have gotten the wins that they would have replaced you? 100%. I wasn't the CEO of the company. Now, first, first of all, I was the, the chief technical officer, chief product officer. Kirk was the CEO. 100%. I think there's, at that point in time, I think we had raised somewhere around 50 or $60 million. Uh, the expectations of the company were, were very, very high. What we could achieve was obvious as well. So it was just a matter of how are we going to get there? Who's going to get us there? So I think, you know, in, in hindsight, when I look back, I would have probably replaced me. I think we were still incredibly important to the success of the company, but bringing in other people that could help us get to that stage might have been necessary if we couldn't have got there because the company deserved it. The customers deserved it. Uh, our staff deserved it. Our investors deserved it. So, you know, when I look back on it, uh, on the company, especially Kirk's role, uh, he was so critical to the growth of the company throughout the entire time, but especially from that point forward, he became an amazing CEO and he dedicated himself to becoming a great leader. And uh, I don't think he would have had that if he didn't go through the challenges. But uh, yeah, I think we would, both would have been replaced. Um, yeah. And who knows what would have happened. Let's go back to what you said about Kurt and becoming a better manager throughout the journey. What do you think it takes to become a leader especially as you have different stages of the company and how does one go about becoming better at that if they're not naturally, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ready on day one to do it. So how do you become better? One of the things that I always give advice around to early stage founders is that it's a journey. It's a 10 year journey, right? And think about it in that way. And you can use governance as a great kind of milestone thing because that happens every three months or it should happen every three months anyways. So if you think about it from a seven to 10 year perspective, you've got 28 to 40 board meetings where you can work on improving your relationship to governance inside of the organization with the ideal of going public within 10 years, right? So that's how you shape governance. And within that cadence of every quarter, you need to improve everything that you do in the board meeting every single time so that when you reach that point, everything's just ready to go. Your, your governance is ready to go. It's the same mindset that you should take across all of your leadership perspectives is that the organization, if it hits what the objectives of the organization are, it's going to scale in this exponential curve, right? And that's this curve of growth that the leader has to go on as well. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as you're going through it is, first of all, it's a long journey. And the second one is it's a steep curve and you have to go along with it. If you don't go along with it, somebody else will be taking that role. I think that's the mindset that leaders need to have. And uh, so if you have that mindset and then you frame it in the context of your own startup, what's your North Star? What are you trying to achieve that you can say in one sentence for 10 years, this is the outcome that we want. You know, we want to cure cancer or we want to... Uh, make finances more transparent for small business, those kinds of things. You know, having that North Star that guides every decision that you make, that guides your product, that guides your team, that allows you as a leader to be able to function around that one thing. Are we stepping towards that or are we stepping away? And that kind of context, having that allows you to say, we're stepping away from it. What's the problem? What's my problem in the organization that allowed us to step away from our North Star? And 
that gives you the ability to course correct and self-reflect and figure out, am I hiring the right people? Am I coaching them the right way? Do I have the right team around me? All of those aspects, uh, am I communicating effectively? All of those things as a leader, you, we, we need to reassess on a regular basis. And, and it's when we get off course, it gives us the best signal of where we need to grow as people. So to me, it's just all of those kind of key things, thinking about it long term, understanding that you need to grow at the pace that the business is growing at, and then just being reflective when things aren't going the right way. I think those are the right things to do to, to build those competencies because we're not built with them. Uh, you know, if you haven't been through it before, you just don't know what you're doing. You just simply don't. I didn't anyways. Uh, and there was a lot of naivety that, that came with uh, with building the company. And Yeah, and you're probably getting feedback from a lot of sources in order to make that leadership style better as well, right? Well, and, that, and that's the other thing. That, that what I tell uh, founders is you're going to you know connect with all these amazing people that have built these companies, invested in this thing and all this other stuff. And 95% of every piece of advice you get is bullshit. Because it doesn't apply to you, it applied to them, and, and it was really successful for them. But you might be able to take some wisdom from it. Look at your own situation, maybe take a little piece of it, or understand why it doesn't apply to you. Because there's so many great pieces of advice there, it just doesn't fit your context. I think that's the other part of what's hard in leadership, is you're surrounded by all these great people with great ideas and great concepts, but may not apply to you. Yeah, I think the context point is super true. It's actually, you're now investing as well, right? And so you've been on both sides of the table. And I'm curious how you think about having ex-operators as investors. On the one hand, if your investors have an R&D operating experience, there's downsides to that. Um, but there's one downside of your investor having operating experience. There's tons of upsides as well. But one of the downsides is what you just articulated, where you get a lot of advice for what worked for them in a very specific setting, in a very specific moment in time, and it might be totally different for you. And so how do you think about having operators on your board or involved in your company? Yeah, I love them. I actually have a high bias towards operators uh, being involved in a company, and especially in the early stages of it. And the reason for that is if they come with some humility, they can be incredibly helpful in, in the way. If they come with a big ego, that's a big problem. Uh, and that's the same for any type of board member or director. But if they think they're always right inside of the company, then the, it's a problem for any investor. But the financial investor without the operational experience just doesn't have the context to be able to relate to the team in the same way, to understand the human impact of the advice that they're giving, to understand what they may have gone through over the course of the last two weeks leading into the board meeting that may be impacting the way they're feeling or how they're addressing a situation. And the other thing I, I find with financial, uh, and this, uh, this is all very generalized, of course, but with financial investors, they just don't have the, I don't know, that gut instinct around how businesses can actually operate and how they can bounce off of bottoms really, really quickly because of any number of factors, right? The other thing that I, I notice about operational investors is the instincts they have around the founders and the team are much stronger around, you know, the right questions to ask, take them out for dinner, uh, let them cry on your shoulder. Those types of things happen a lot more effectively when there's that shared lived experience. Yeah, it's also interesting. I think that you're right that ex-operators also ask different questions. And I think they tend to ask a lot more around the culture and team building and how to actually execute something as opposed to what's the market, what's the size, what's the competitive advantage and differentiation. It is a different subset. And as you look at businesses, what do you think you assess differently now that you wouldn't have looked for if you hadn't been on the founding journey yourself? It's really about the way that they talk about the future. 
I think that's the, one of the keys that I listen for is, do they talk about the future as an inevitability or do they talk about it as maybes? You know, I think that's a, a strong difference in founders. The founders that see the future and talk about it as if it's already here tend to be the ones that create big companies because they have that mindset of it's inevitable. It's going to happen. The optimism's there. It doesn't matter what's in front of me. It's going to be achieved. So that's one thing I really look for is, is how founders talk about their companies, their product, their teams, those kinds of things. I, I've been fortunate enough to work with so many founders that there is this pattern recognition I've picked up with their language. Super interesting. I've never heard anyone give the language answer. It's very, very interesting. And let's go back to what you said is one of the biggest challenges of founding a company, which is maintaining any kind of personal life outside of this, right? As, as I'm interviewing you, I've got a seven week old in my lap. You have three kids. You have, you know, you're a human outside of just, you're not a robot founder. What advice, if any, I know you said you didn't always get it right. And I'm sure, I'm, I don't think we've made a founder who said they totally got it right in any case, but what do you think you would do differently if you could found again with that in mind? And, and, or do you think it's inevitable that it's just a challenge to have a personal life while you're founding a company? When I think about starting companies and what my life was like going through that and thinking about all the other founders that I've worked with over the years and, and the challenges they've faced, I think the one thing that stands out uh, that I see in pattern recognition is the, the personal challenge of just living life through this journey of starting a, a massive company and doing something that most people think are impossible. It's really a lonely type of journey and you're challenged with, you know, this great objective that you're trying to achieve, but it's full of these pitfalls and minefields and ups and downs and, and solitude and these decisions that nobody may agree with that may anger people or, or disappoint people or, you know, it's, it's just this wild, you know, seven to 10 year journey of just kind of bouncing around inside of yourself. And you kind of have to go with the flow of what happens in your day-to-day -day life. So I find that to be one of the biggest challenges is just how do you stay level? How do you stay within a zone where you're not too high, you're not too low, and then try and keep some balance of humanity inside of your life, you know, with other people and uh, your loved ones and those types of things. Because I find that myself, other people that, that do what we do, we tend to become quite obsessive about our, what we're doing and, and everything else becomes a peripheral thing. I think that's the biggest challenge is just how do you remain like level? I didn't do a great job of that all the time. That's for sure. It's, um, so it's one of the things that I recognize in, in uh, other founders as well. It's this up and down journey and it, and it can be really, really challenging. And I probably would have set up my life to exercise more. That would have been one that I would have done. It probably would have served me better uh, um, even in the day-to-day -day of the operation of the company. But that's a really personal one. I think the other thing, you know, I, it's hard to know if it would have you know, in hindsight, could it be different, but setting up your personal relationships in a way that is more ingrained with where your life is going. So you don't have as much time. You may not be as flexible as you used to be. Uh, you may do things sporadically and just being able to communicate that more effectively with friends, your, your partner in life, those kinds of things. I didn't do any of that well. And uh, I really sacrificed a lot on the relationship side of things. Not that those relationships disappeared or it, it's just they paused in many ways over the course of time. Now that I've, I, it's years since the company has sold, all of those relationships are back and, I'm, and I learned a lot through that. 
But I think that's the one thing is just trying to make sure that those, especially in the early stages, trying to make sure that those relationships understand what you're going through. And so you have that support system. If you don't have that support system, it's pretty lonely. Uh, that's what I found anyways. Uh, so that's what I would change. I don't know if it's possible to change it because I don't know if it's possible to fully understand what you're about to get yourself into. But the relationships is what I would, I think that's what I missed the most of, of going through the journey is spending so much time working and, and not having those personal touch points that, that could keep me in balance, I think, because sometimes I stay in balance. And I think having people around me would have changed that. It's also hard because relationships, you kind of, it's not that they're a given, but every relationship, right? Um, every personal relationship you need to be investing in and, and spending time on, but that investment always can feel different than a work investment, which has a kind of a more tangible thing. If I, if I don't do this thing tonight, this thing's not going to happen tomorrow, right? Whereas if I go out for a glass of wine with my partner or my best friend or whatever, you know, that feels like something that can happen any day, which isn't necessarily the truth. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. And, you know, I, I think much more so it's harder on the people on the other side because they can't fully grasp the decisions that we make in, in sacrificing those relationships uh, or that moment in time in that relationship. I think they just can't fully understand what's driving us into that decision versus going to grab that glass of wine. Because like I said earlier, it's an obsession at certain points yeah. in, in, in the journey. Right. And there's nothing that can distract you from it. I think creating big companies, that's kind of a mindset that you have to have. I don't think it's possible to do it without it. Yeah, it's interesting. My last guest was a husband and wife co-founding team. And he said, you know, yes, there's challenges about that. But the good news is she has full context for everything I do. Whenever it's a Saturday night and I'm like, I got to go take this call. She doesn't ask me questions because she knows who the call is and what it's about. And you're making me think that that's a whole different perspective. Yeah, I, I have a number of founding teams that are husband and wife, and that's exactly what I see. The context of their relationship is always present inside of their business. Uh, their business is, is present inside of their relationship, and it allows for something special to happen there. I'm sure it's also very challenging at other times where uh, it becomes the thing in their lives, uh, and it's not about them as a couple. But I am envious of that relationship that they've got with their co-founder so tight. You know, you wake up in the morning and it's like, hey, I got to call this guy or I'm staying up late to answer this email. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, did you get on top of it? That must happen like constantly inside of there. Right. Um, so it's uh, it's a fun dynamic. And I think it's uh, especially when they're winning, it's a really nice thing to see. I'm sure you can probably get some of that by just talking to your the people in your support network about it. But it's, it's probably different when you don't know the people and don't feel the same pressure to deliver and, and to grow. I have to ask just because I see it. Your shirt says adultish. What does that mean to you? <laughs> uh, I, I just bought this shirt, actually. I, I love t-shirts. And this one's like super comfortable and, and soft. So that's the primary reason I bought it. I think I have this childish mindset uh, that, uh, of course, I can be professional and and, uh, and really straightforward and direct. And But other times, I just like to joke around, play games and have fun. And I like to do that in the businesses that I do it with. I like to do it with my friends, my, my partner. I, I just, I'm always a little bit of a kid at heart. So I, I, when I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's pretty appropriate. And when Emily saw it on me, she was like, yes, 100%. <laughs> that's amazing. I don't often buy t-shirts that say things. I don't know. Maybe it's like a, a woman thing. I buy a lot of, you know, these like crop tops, skirts, whatever, whatever. But I, my favorite shirt that says something that I own is, Surely not everyone was kung fu fighting, which just cracks me up. <laughs> oh, 
I love things like that. But for me, actually, it's all about the comfort. If this shirt wasn't comfortable, I wouldn't be wearing it. No, that's great. Actually, when I was pregnant, I felt like I only wanted soft fabrics. I was like, can I get something super soft? You're right about that. Because you're a CTO. You were you know, a technical co-founder. We haven't had that many technical co-founders on the show. I'm curious now that you're an investor, do you think that that makes you, do you do really deep technical diligence or do you outsource that? Or do you, you know, how do you think about it? Uh, actually, it's allowed me to be um, a lot more flexible around technical diligence. And it, remember that I invest very, very early. So sometimes there's not even a product uh, or the products in development. I think the only thing I really talk to them about is how they're building their products. I don't really care what stack they're using. I don't care much about anything like that because I know what I learned as this, as a technical co-founder is that there are so many different ways to solve the problem of building a product in market. So, you know, that, those aspects that where people spend a lot of time digging in on it, I don't find Lura as valuable, at least at where I am in the stage of investing I'm at. Maybe if you're, if you're talking about a, a series B company that you're going to put a hundred million dollars into and, and there is some questions about the product in the market today, then it may be appropriate. But uh, I'm not really too concerned about it. I'm more concerned from the standpoint of can the technology that you're building scale and in what way. And the reality is, you know, within Wave, we replatformed three times. You know, I, th- I can't remember how many times Twitter replatformed something like seven or eight times. It's about being able to continue to fly the ship while you're in market and, and while you're scaling despite the fact that you may have to do crazy things like rebuild the entire thing on the fly. Um, so those things are just possible. So I don't really lose sleep around where they're at today. I'm more concerned about, you know, what type of company they want to build, what, how big the market is, how, what the outcome for the customer is going to be, and do I see a path to success? Um, that's really what I'm looking for. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, glad to know that you don't do as much technical diligence because I don't either as an early stage investor. <laughs> but you do believe they can hire the right technical team to do it, right? Exactly. Exactly. That, those are correctable problems. Uh, founders need to be focused on the type of company they're building. And one of those aspects is the process of building it. And they may not get it right, which is an expensive mistake to make, especially in the early stages. But those are solvable problems, in my opinion. And you talked earlier about you know, investors and board meetings and regaining confidence of investors when they lose it. Looking back, and if you were to start another journey from scratch, what would you do to choose the right investors and to make effective boards? Because we could talk a whole podcast about ineffective boards, which are, there are many of, but um, what would you do differently or what would be your takeaways? So we had a, an amazing first two investors in the company with Omer's Ventures coming in and they were they were formed our first board with us. Uh, Peter Koresha uh, was our board member. John Ruffalo was uh, was his successor on the board. Great support from that organization. And then our Series A investor, Debbat Ulukar from Charles River, was a phenomenal, phenomenal founder-friendly investor that helped us build the company, helped us build ourselves too. So I wouldn't change anything about those people. What I would do in the, is uh, earlier on, I would bring in more third-party directors that didn't have financial interests in the company, but had interest in the outcome of the company. And we experienced more financial investors on the board later, which didn't give us the balance that we need. But that's one thing that I would change as far as composition. The other thing that I would change is my own approach to board management. It took a while for us to take 
like full ownership and control of the board process. And I think both Kirk and I would do it very, very differently, starting again, knowing what we know today about board management. And we were quite naive going into it. And, and I think a little bit nervous about how we manage the board. Actually, they, they're our board. They work for us, for our success. And it took us a while to get to that point. Kind of, both of us were not great students. And I think we both felt like the board meeting was going to the principal's office. So shifting that mindset would have been the, it would be the biggest change I'd make in, in, uh, uh, with investors and boards. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because now that I think about it, and I've had I've had a lot of conversations around board best practices and governance, and almost inevitably, first time founders, the first time they do the board meeting, it's like a huge deal, right? It's like, oh my god, let me go read everything out there about board best practices and talk to every founder and craft the perfect deck and the perfect update. And and I actually just had a board meeting today, and we had a discussion over lunch of like what what is good and bad. What do good and bad boards look like? And the truth is, I think. If you look over time, people realize not only it's their board that they can manage, but also they should make the conversation work for them. And if you're spending 98% of the time reporting and you're spending a lot of time prepping for the meeting, it's probably the wrong discussion, right? And if you're actually using people to have a strategic discussion where you think they can actually have an input or can affect it in some way, and it's a conversation you want to have, I think that that's another sign you're having a good, effective board. Yeah, that that I think encapsulates the the outcome that that I would want to drive is: Are we having the, the conversations that we want to have as founders and, and the management team needs to have to drive the business forward? If it's driven from the other direction, or if we're having conversations that the investors want to have, sometimes that's necessary. Don't get me wrong; there's a balance there. But if it's predominantly in that direction, um, you're probably not getting the strategic value from the board that you need. Yeah, I agree. I also think. I'm curious your views on this, but one of my views is that you should also treat the board like its own group and sub team of your company. So the same way you think about culture for your team, obviously you invest in it differently because you share a different amount of time together. But I think there's a lot of board dynamics gone wrong when there's different agendas at the table or different relationships that people have. They want to impress people, or they don't like people or whatnot. You know, you have a lot of, especially if you have a lot of financial investors, they often know each other or have views on each other's firms. So you kind of also have to invest in the board as an entity so that it has a culture of its own and can make decisions effectively on its own. But I'm curious if you have any, if you agree or disagree with that. Oh, I totally do. Uh, uh, you know, I think one of the, the things that we got into that was very beneficial for us as founders and what was great for our board is we would always have dinner the night before our board meeting. Always. And not every director would be able to make it. They'd be maybe flying in late or whatever. But it allowed us to just be human, eat food together, talk about what's going on with families, vacations, what's happening in the general market. And of course, you end up talking about the company uh, because everybody's curious and everybody has something to say. Um, but it allows these really soft conversations before you get into the harder ones to, to occur where it's more about relationship building in the context of building a company. And um, I think that was, you know, when I, I reflect on our, on, on DevDite Ulicar, uh, I mentioned him earlier, our series A investor from Charles river, that relationship was built off of those moments and it was strong because of those moments. That man uh, I, I look at him, he was as effective as growing our company as Kirk and I was at certain points. He was our best friend, our, uh, our, our most critical commentator sometimes. He was the person who put the mirror up in front of us and said, hey, 
this is what's going to happen. Look, look in the mirror. And he, he just told us the truth. And it was because of those moments. So uh, I think that's a, a creating a board dynamic that allows those relationships to happen where um, they're always going to be there. They're going to help you. They're going to support you. And they only want to see you win uh, because they want to see the company win. Um, I think that's uh, it's critical. It's critical. It, and I mean, it's so worthwhile too. Otherwise, what's the point? I mean, other than making money, what's the point, right? It's, uh, you know, having that relationship and that example in my life has really informed how I've gone into the market as an investor. And uh, I, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. So having that, that opportunity to spend time with people like that is incredible. I'm sure you and every other investor would just, I mean, there's no better way to talk about an investor than how you just described that. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, he's a beautiful man. And, and again, another operator built a big company through the dot-com boom and, you know, uh, tr moved it from India to, to the U.S. and had to lay off a whole bunch of people. So he had been there and he'd had the win, but he'd had the struggle too. So it was really nice to have somebody like that, uh, you know, just supporting you. Do you have any examples of those moments where he either held up the mirror or kind of told you something that was hard to hear? Yeah. Um, so there was one time uh, in, in that one area of the company where we were late getting to revenue, he actually invited us out to his home in Massachusetts. So we were just hanging out in this beautiful home in this beautiful area walking around and we we're trying to plan out how we were going to do what was going to be an inside round. And basically he he knocked us off our high horse pretty quickly where he just said, this is going to be really, really hard to do and we might not get it done. And it was the first time that and my heart sank in that moment. I was like, what are you talking? What? I, that, I hadn't even contemplated. You're like, I've been lying to myself that this is going to happen. Don't even, don't tell me this is a possibility. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, it was one of those moments of like, this is the guy who has so much money invested in us, so much time invested in us. And this relationship that we, we built together told us we could fail and it was just one of those moments of like shit and because he did that it reframed how we were approaching the problem right and uh, it certainly lit a fire under my ass differently than i was thinking about it before you talk about it being an obsession so obviously you give up a lot on the journey as you talked about earlier in terms of relationships and time and physical health all of those things what makes the obsession worth it I think there's a number of factors that go into it. Like I think as an entrepreneur, the thing that one of the things that drove me to be an entrepreneur is a sense of self-control, um, my own destiny, setting that. It's not, that's a little bit of a fallacy, but there's still uh, a lot of that that's true. So that was a that was an aspect of it that uh, that I really think is important. I think having gone through Wave and understanding the impact that we had. We had something like 5 million small businesses from around the world join our platform and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them utilize our, our products very, very deeply. And the impact that that had on their, their businesses was really significant, uh, significant in, in certain aspects of it. And how it impacted an entrepreneur's life was really, really important. And uh, as an entrepreneur that had been working in the accounting industry, hitting that level of scale of impact was great. And hearing those stories come back about, hey, this changed this in my life or this did this in my business. And, you know, getting that feedback was really monumental and feeds me. It really does feed me. So now as an investor, when I'm working with these founders that are, 
you know, they're building these technologies that are detecting cancer or, or healing wounds that don't heal on their own. Those types of things where we're having massive impacts on human beings' lives. And then you get to hear the stories come back. It feeds me. And I think that's the drug that I'm after. And that's the obsession that I have is that feedback loop. Don't get me wrong. The outcome and the, the win at the end, the financial reward that comes from it is also a very, very important part of it. I play to win. I like to compete. And uh, that's how we keep score. So that's a big part of it as well is that financial aspect of it. But that's not the driver. I think that's the outcome uh, that we want to have uh, that rewards us for the journey. But for me, I think it's the what's actually happening in the world. How is, how is it when I write a check to this founder and then spend hours and hours with this company to try and help them achieve what they're doing? How does it help that first person? And when I hear that story, it really is, you know, ah, that's worth it. Let's do that again. Let's go. You know, so that's where I am. Uh, I just like to win. I like to, I like to feel those things. So. I love that. I mean, winning, it's also having impact, right? So given the fact that you said you're very naive as, mo as all, all of us are, and as everyone who founds a company largely is, um, what advice would you give somebody who's founding a company for the first time right now? Just do it. Like, just go, go hard, be prepared to work hard, batten down the hatches and get ready for a marathon. And I think that's the key. You know, it, it is a marathon and most people don't realize it. in today's world, everything's, you know, just in time. We get our uh, dopamine shots on our phones so quickly. This is not that. This is a long, long, long journey. So try and figure out how you go through life. And, you know, if it is truly a marathon and I've never run a marathon and, and I'm never going. So uh, this analogy is kind of foreign to me, but I don't think marathoners celebrate when they get to the 10th mile. They don't cry on the 12th. Maybe they do cry on the 12th mile. I don't know. I would. But, you know, they don't have these big ups and downs on this journey. They celebrate at the end, right? Uh, and in the meantime, they keep inside of themselves, inside of this range of emotions that allows them to keep pace and keep going. And I think that's kind of a mindset you need to have in order to be highly effective over a long period of time is recognize that it's a long journey, recognize that you're, you're going to have these milestones, recognize that the big, big wins that you have along the way are actually small wins uh, to the big win that you're going to have. And the, and the downsides to it are going to be sometimes really harsh and really steep and maybe right after a big win. So the, the emotional turmoil of going from a big, big win to a, uh, now an immediate loss is challenging. But find that balance because tomorrow you got to get up and run again and the next day and the next day and the next day. So that's what I would say is just prepare yourself for the long haul and just be ready for that and, uh, and stay balanced through it as much as you can because we're crazy. Like, let's face <laughs> it, we're, we're a bit crazy. So you have to have a little bit of insanity to be able to do what we do. One of our partners starts most conversations with founders like, you're crazy. You're doing one of the most crazy jobs in the world. Why do you do it? Do you think that anyone can be a founder? I think people can learn to be founders. I think there's some pieces of it that are required. And I don't think there's any you know, checklist that you can go through. I think there's a combination of factors that, that allow people to be successful as founders. It depends on what type of company as well. If it's more of a lifestyle business, that's different than a, a high growth company that's scaling at internet scale. But I think there's some aspects that, that play into competitiveness, personal 
interactions, uh, you know, being able to get a team to follow you uh, and be loyal to you. I think there's a resiliency aspect to it uh, that's built off of something. And like I said earlier, it's built off of uh, optimism for me. Like I said, uh, for me anyways, I've been very fortunate to be able to spend so much time with so many founders that I've been able to see this pattern recognition around language that we talked about earlier. You know, being able to talk about a, a better future as an inevitable thing, I think is a, you know, one of those things that I see great founders having. So no, I don't think everybody can do it. Just like I can't dunk a basketball. I'll never talk about it. So not everybody can can build a company. Or run a marathon, but you never know. Uh, no, I do. I do. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> I did a half marathon once. And I have to tell you, I, I like to run. I run like three times a week, but I'm, I like to run like small, nice, fun runs. And I was not one of those people who got addicted and needed to do more and more. And I have a friend who runs like crazy hundred mile things. Like that was not me. But anyway, I will be mindful of your time. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, no worries, Maria. It's good to see you. Thanks, James, for being with us today. If you want to learn more about what James is up to now, go to thinairlabs.ca to see more about his venture capital firm and growth studio backing incredible early stage founders globally. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. As always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, You're not alone, and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if this story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.